Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Hey, just one quick announcement before we start the show. I know I tricked you. We usually do this before the intro, but this is a really important announcement for us. 20 years ago, His Eminence Francis Cardinal George established the Liturgical Institute to prepare Catholics for a new era in liturgical renewal. In the span of two decades, the Liturgical Institute has become the preeminent place for liturgical renewal in America and beyond. Today, we are proud to continue this mission through our degree programs, online courses, videos, and this award-winning podcast. But we're just getting started. And I'm asking you to consider becoming one of 200 donors between now and the end of 2020 to make a monthly gift of $20 or more to the Liturgical Institute. This gift, along with those of countless other supporters, will make it possible to continue liturgical renewal and bring about a true second spring in our third decade of existence. So if you would be so kind to contribute to this campaign, we are really in need of $220 a month donors. You can go to donate.liturgy.online and fill out everything there. These are tax-deductible donations. If you are currently a Patreon supporter and you want to migrate and move over to this, that's totally awesome. I would love for you to do that. I would love for you to get a tax deduction on these gifts. So, Again, if you're interested in helping us out, please go to donate.online.liturgy. Now, back to the show. Gentlemen, it is time. It is time for another episode of Etymology with the Liturgy Guys. Dennis, I forgot that I was supposed to make an intro to this, so if I find time to do it before this airs, I will do it. But Etymology with the Liturgy Guys, so our spinoff podcast, the Etymology Guys, is going to... Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm only half joking there. Uh, but we're going to talk about some words, and I think due to our improvised uh, template from before, we'll just go back and forth. And so I guess this week we'll start with Dennis. Yes. Uh, when Dennis was talking about the words that he wanted to talk about, uh, I think he had like 20-something words on that list. So if you also have words that you want to etymologize, uh, call back to the last episode, uh, then let us know. Tweet us at Liturgy Guys. Send us an email, questions at liturgyguys.com. Uh, and who knows if Chris will ever get any. Oh, wait, Chris. Mm. Did we mention the beer already? Yeah. 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 Somebody said, Katrine. Yeah. Somebody sent you a beer with a question on it. Yes. That was awesome. Yeah. So I would like we'll, a cherry pie with a question on it, please. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I would just like the cherry pie. Just no question needed. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, so etymology, we're going to start with uh, Dennis this week. Yeah. So what's uh, what's the first word we got today? Well, in case someone hasn't listened to the etymology podcast, number one, remember what etymology is. It's word origins, right? So you look up where these words come from. But it's actually more attuned to the original and true meaning. So the, the Latin version of etymology is veriloquium, which you may remember. It's the true speaking. So this isn't just a normal you know, anthropological understanding of where the words come from. It's how we can come to understand. So the first word that I would like to use is the word glory. 
Glory, as in Gloria, singing the Gloria or the glory of G-L-O-R-I-A. Gloria. Gloria. We've got you on the run now. Gloria. Do you remember that one? Nope. Gloria. Oh my gosh. Gloria. Okay, well, this uh, <laughs> you guys are in territory that is well Your beyond. Your song is now religion. over. Well, what does it what does it mean generally? What do people think glory means? It's actually kind of hard to put. It comes from to. the Greek cognate glow, which means to. <laughs> well, actually, it's probably related. Honestly, that's pretty good. I have no idea. Yeah, but I mean, whether you know, you know, accurately what it really where it comes from, and what what's glory? It's it's actually surprisingly hard to put words to. What is it? What is glory? I would say it. Some, is this something that emanates from God? Yeah. Okay. Is it? It's so. It's the radiance of His being is what glory is. Yeah. Sometimes they say the splendor of God. You know, so beauty is described as the splendor of the truth. You know, what does it mean when the truth radiates so clearly? That's what we call you know beauty. Um, sometimes it's called praise or magnificence, uh, pomp. It gets used or uh, great praise or honor. Nobody knows exactly where it comes from, but what I found was one of the interesting possibilities is that it actually glory came from Noria, which is related to Narus. This is G-N-A-R-U-S or G-N-O-R-I-A. Where is it going, Chris? Well, uh, no, is it related to Gnosis? Yes. Okay, right. so which means uh, knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know, you have agnosis, you're, you're agnostic, uh, but, and then no, uh, what, what's the Gnosticism is the, the heresy where you get some sort of secret knowledge or something like that. Of, right. Of, uh, well, if you're ignorant, it means you don't know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thing. So if it's related to that, it has something to do with truth or knowledge. Right. Exactly. So here's one of the thoughts is that a beautiful thing radiates out knowledge. So it's a glory that is this radiation of the self outward so that it can be knowable. And so the word magnificence has that n in it as well. You know, there's that Greek version of glory, which is doxa, um, which is sometimes equated with opinion, um, but it's also associated with knowing, right? If you have an opinion that's right, then you have this sort of glorious capacity to know. And so, you know, if you hear someone speak and they answer all your problems or the way a doctor diagnoses a health problem or something, diagnosis, right, a health problem, suddenly what's true about you is known to them and it's re- it's reflected back to you. So there's something about when they speak, they say, oh, I know what's wrong with you. Or, Let me tell you the truth. That's splendid. It's magnificent. It's majestic. It comes out from the truth, but then becomes known. So when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about God's kind of full and his knowing and then we get to know him and uh and then we know of his greatness and we sing that back to him and then he shares it with us so there you go glory so if, if we sing knowing. if we sing glory to god are we mm-hmm. saying that we want god to be more known or are we saying we just recognize his knowability well i think another one of the meanings that became acquired over the over the years is uh, praise or honor so when you glorify something, you're actually praising or honoring, um, partly because you know the person that you're honoring, right? I know how great you are. It's radiated out from you. And then my response to you is to honor you. And so to receive, to receive from a glorious thing is to know it. But then to return that um, admiration is also to glorify. It's to return that knowability back. And it's funny how words can have these multiple, uh, multiple meanings. Hmm. All right. I like it. That's all I got on that one. 
All right, so that was an episode of etymology, guys. If you mm. no, I'm just kidding. Chris, you got more? What do you got? Yeah, I got one. I don't. Uh, some, some, when are you guys writing these words down? We, so I, have a risk, yeah. them. I think uh, I don't think we've done this one yet. Uh, anamnesis. Well, we've talked about it, but we haven't done an actual etymological. Yeah. Do you remember Jesse? What anamnesis means? Uh, yes, it means to rem- remember something, but to make it known in the present. Yeah, that is it exactly. So its uh, etymological root is uh, menesis, M-N-E-S-I-S. And it's when Men- you- Menise is a baseball player. She's pretty good at it. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I was thinking more like a mnemonic device. Uh, is something that helps you to remember. So if uh, uh, Roy G. Biv or the colors of uh, the rainbow or uh, uh, every good boy does fine are the notes on the lines of the treble clef, uh, left to loosen, right to tighten, things like that. My dog has fleas. The the What is that? That's how you tune a ukulele. A ukulele. My dog has fleas. <laughs> Uh, it's goats can't eat anything actually is the G C E A or the, that's what you sing is by dog has fleas, but those are, oh, oh, yeah, there's no M. Well, there's no M tune it to an M. Oh yeah. I, it's a, no, it's, you're right. See, you gotta, you gotta, it's important to use the right mnemonic device. See, if you forget though, you negate that memory and you have amnesia. You can no longer remember. But if you have an anamnesis, it means that you've brought back that memory into the present such that it is present and active again, like right before you. So uh, we think about these, these, you know, Moses and God the Father constantly talking each other out of giving up on the chosen people. And so uh, I think it was after the golden calf incident, God the Father says, I'm, I'm sick of this people. They're, they're, they're disobedient. Stiff neck. They don't. They don't listen. They're complaining the whole time. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, "Ah, but remember, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." And it's not that God had forgotten that. Oh, that's right. You like he forgot where he put his car keys or something like that. What Moses is asking him to do is to make that covenant present and active and alive in the present moment. That's what an anamnesis is. And so at the Last Supper, uh, the account of which is written in Greek, uh, Jesus says, do this as an anamnesis of me. So when you do this, my paschal mystery, suffering, death, resurrection, will be made present before you and applicable to you as much as it was 2,000 years ago. So that is what an anamnesis is. And so in the this really becomes articulate. Notice when you go to Mass next time, after the – put my finger on it here, give you an example. After, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to do this from memory, Chris. <laughs> uh, so this is right after the uh, memorial acclamation. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, kind of an anamnesis sort of uh, moment. Uh, In the third Eucharistic prayer, therefore, Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your son, his wondrous uh, resurrection and ascension into heaven. These are anamnetic types of, uh, of words that recall what Christ did and make them present in the here and now. Anamnesis. 
I don't know what's more impressive, his uh, etymology and study of the word anonesis or the fact that he actually knew the standard tuning for a ukulele. But <laughs> I will leave that yeah. for, in, for our audience to discuss while we go to the next word, Dennis. No, Dennis is the not word, the, the next word. The is not word Dennis. Is. Oh, that would be interesting. <gasps> oh, do you know I the etymology? Stumbled. Do you know the etymology yeah. of Dennis? Do you know where that comes from? We did Christopher last time. We yeah, did he's the Christ oh. bearer. Yeah, uh, um, it's from Dionysius, the Greek uh, god of wine and uh, orgies. So, because you because you lose your head when you're drunk. But you're well, a you're a pseudo Dionysius. Yeah, I'm a pseudo pseudo really. Uh, it's from you can imagine it becoming Dionysius, and then in French it became Dionys, then Dionys, and then that became Dennis. That's when I tell Siri to call you, it says calling Denis McNamara. Yeah, Denis <laughs> McNamara. All right, well, uh, what do we got? The, uh, the first Dionysius was was a bishop, right? And bishop is a funny word, it doesn't really sound like any of those Greek or Latin uh, roots for things. Um, but it actually is from Old English. The The way it's spelled is B-I-S-C-E-O-P. I don't know how you say that in Old English. It's probably biskiop or something, which they think comes from some odd version of episcopus. It became, as it traveled to England, biskiop. And they didn't quite get it right or somehow it merged with the Old English uh, language. But that comes from the Latin episcopus, which, of course, comes from the Greek episcopos. Now, can you figure that out? Don't look it up. Epi and scopos. There's some there's some roots in there that you might be able to figure out. How about scope? Scopos. Telescope. Microscope. Yeah. Periscope. Yep. What do those things have in common? Mouthwash. Yeah, the mouthwash. Mouthwash. Except for the mouthwash, what do they have in common? It's about seeing. It's about seeing. Yeah. Watching, looking, watching after, looking over. Uh, how about epi? Like epidermis. That's the surface? Yeah, it's the surface? over or above. Like the epidermis is the top layer of your skin. So a bishop who is an episcopos is a, a one that watches, one that looks after, a guardian, a protector. And so um, we can think of the bishop in that fatherly sense as someone who um, actually watches over the church, watches over the revelation uh, that was given to the apostles. I wonder if Christ. Dennis, that, that biscop, like an mm-hmm. optometrist or ophthalmology, mm-hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with that. I don't know what the bisque means, but. Yeah, you know, as I looked it up, it, it's one, there's some kind of long, complicated, you know, uh, linguistic thing that it's an example of a word change that comes from one place to the other. I don't quite understand. It has something to do with the. What it says here, the Saxon preference for the softer labial and hissing sounds modeled into, into <laughs> Bishop, right? So, you know, that, yes. we have a lot of th and p sounds in uh, English that they don't, they don't really have so much in other languages. So the English took Episcopus and made it Bishop somehow. Anyway, so there's the, etymology, there's the actual linguistic way it happened. But the, the point is, a bishop looks over his church, the way I say a father um, is an episcopus, right, of his family. You talk about the father being the priest who gives the blessings in his own house. You know, he he, he looks over things. And so you guys are episcopoi, both of you. Take that. <laughs> well, Dennis, I will say that that definition and breakdown of the word bishop was ordinary. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, that is an interesting thing, right? Sometimes you see that. They're called ordinaries versus, um, but, um, you know, that's the, the normal, the, the full authority of bishop versus an um, auxiliary bishop, for instance. Why is an ordinary an ordinary? Hmm. 
Why is an ordinary? Because he uh, helps to maintain order. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's where it comes from. But it, it means sort of rules, regular, customary, the ordinary, the normal, right? It means mm-hmm. normal. And so order um, comes from that. We have words like prime ordeal, right? What was the first original order of things? And so um, what is the, they give an order to, an, an order, they arrange things. The word order has that sense of keeping order. And that's the, the bishop is the same one, right? What does he do? He looks over, watches over. The episcopus watches over. And gives order Man, I was just body. trying to make a dumb pun, and I then you go ahead and say something incredibly intelligent. Chris and I are too and... smart for you. All right, Chris, Chris you got especially. another one for us. Well, again, this too, uh, in fact, this came up. Oh, I, I think... thought you were just going to say, nope. <laughs> no. Well, you could decide if you want to do this one. I, I wanted to do uh, economy, which is something we probably came up in that catechism uh, section. But in fact, I think it did. Uh, or the oikos was uh, the management of uh, the house, mm-hmm. the management of the house. So the the and so economics came to mean the management of the household, and it's a theological term before it is a kind of a moneyed term or something like that. So the catechism uses this term all the time: the economy of salvation. Then um, I remember when I first came across this, I thought economy. That's that's a uh, not something you'd expect to run into when you're talking about things in the liturgy. But remember how the, the catechism uses it. It, it compares it and to uh, theology. So theology, the catechism says in the tradition, refers to the innermost life of God, the relationship of the divine persons, uh, one with the other, God in himself in a certain way. And economy is how God acts outside of himself in creating and managing this household, which is creation. And then uh, in an intense way, uh, the, the house of Israel, and in a more intense way, uh, the household, which is the church and how it leads all things back to himself. So economy is used uh, quite often, the oikos, the management of the household, how God manages uh, his creation back to himself. Now, again, I think I we've probably talked about that before. Dave, give you my analogy of the father teaching his kid how to ride the bike. Mm, uh, I, I you did this in your in your uh, in the class that you taught uh, for some yeah, certificate program. I don't, program, I don't, but I don't, it, so. I don't yeah, not here. And yeah. if I don't remember it, everybody. Will know it, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Irenaeus of uh, I think it's Irenaeus of Leon says that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God the Father's two creating hands. Okay, so imagine you have Father, and then the one hand you have the Son, and the other hand you have the Holy Spirit, and he, he creates all things. And then with these two hands, he's managing the household back to himself. And I thought it'd be like a, a dad who's teaching his kid to, to get the hang of riding the bike without the training wheels. So he takes off the training wheels, and he's kind of managing, guiding, steering this creation of his, you know, his child, um, so that he doesn't run off course into a ditch or into traffic or into a tree or something like that, and helping to guide and steer him back to safety in uh, kind of the heavenly oikos. And this, I thought, would be a, is kind of a, a human example of how God, the, how God the Father with the Son and the Holy Spirit manages creation to avoid 
pitfalls and uh, detours and tangents and whatnot. And so this house of Israel, the bark, which is the church eventually can return safely to himself. So that's the, and the, and the sacraments are the helmet and the elbow pads and knee pads, just in case. Yeah. Well, I, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Actually, you know what, the, why this is important eventually is that for each of the sacraments, when, in, when the catechism talks about it, it always asks what the name of the sacrament is. And then it, Almost to a sacrament, it says, what's the place of baptism in the economy of salvation? Confirmation in the economy of salvation. The Eucharist in the economy of salvation. And so exactly, Jesse, the, the sacraments are kind of the, the energy, the um, channeling God's protection and power so that his progeny can get back safely to the household. So, yeah, it's, it has everything to do with understanding the sacraments and celebrating the sacraments. Well, Chris, please tell your wife that I want to write a book with her and how she manages feeding all of those children mm-hmm. that you guys have. And she can write the book and do the recipes and all that stuff. I will just uh, contribute the title, which will be The Economy of Salivation. Oh, <laughs> And how does she go to sleep next to your beard every night? That's what I <laughs> Because of Beard Balm. Go to beardbalm.com slash liturgy or catholicbalmco.com. Slash. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think we'll do one more each. So, Dennis, what oh, do you yeah. got? Well, I'm doing two for one. You got a two for one special for me today. Cassock and surplus. All right. So, Dennis has a surplus of surplus. etymologies surplus. for us. Leaches. Okay. Well, cassock, first of all, you know what that is. That's that kind of long black robe that priests wear. It's part of their official dress. If you tell me sock is a part of this, I'm going to flip out. But uh, keep well, going. no, cassock, I know you have the famous liturgy meme about the cassock, right? What was that again? What did that look like? Uh, it was just black socks with the, what's it called? The fascia or uh, what's oh, the, the little what's the uh, belt? Sort of sash around it? Yeah. Yeah. What's that belt called? I forgot. I think that's it. Chris, do you know? Fascia? Yeah. Fascia, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not all that interesting theologically, um, but Kassak from the 1540s is, became the word as we know it now. They think it came from Turkish, actually. Because no, that's, the, a, that's a Cossack. A Cossack. Well, actually, it's related to that. Okay. No, is it yes, really? It, yes, it is, because that's the Cossacks awesome. were a kind of military adventurer, guerrilla nomad from Turkey. But that term actually came from the Russian Kozak. And so what happened is the Russians came to Turkey and they taught them how to be this kind of military adventurer gorilla. And they wore these particular coats, these long coats that uh, were associated with their names. And it was a long riding coat. So you, you think of a cassock now more like a tunic or a dress, but think of it like you have a long coat that goes down to your knees and it's buttoned down the front and the collar flips up around your neck. So that became eventually known as the uh, Cossack. I think it may have been from um, uh, Persian, actually. Cause um, means raw silk and agand means to be stuffed. So it's a stuffed raw silk coat used by the Cossacks who were the Turkish invaders of things, right? And so when the... Wow, that's awesome. I know. I who it. knew? So this this give new meaning to what you do when you put a cassock on. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be a Turkish invader. Now, where did you come across this? This is what I want to know. Oh, it just came to me in a vision. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's your cossack cassock. But then the surplus, you know, is that kind of 
I don't know. How do you describe it? It's like an overcoat, right? It's like, why don't you spell it first of all? Sorry. Okay. Surplus is S U R P L I C E, not U S. So surplus means extra, more than enough. Surplus means this over thing. So if you have a cassock and surplus, you see altar servers wear these a lot. Black cassock with a white uh, overgarment called the surplus. Now you should already know, you see S U R in a word. What are you thinking? What word should be coming to mind already? Sur. Like surplus, sir. I don't have any idea. Ah, well, if you know your French, it is sur means over or on top of. Hmm. So um, a surplus comes from the Latin sur or super, which means over. So what is it over? You'd think it would be called a sur cassock, right? Over the cassock, but it's not that. It's from the Latin pelicium. We get the word pelt from that. So it's over the fur garment or over the skins of animals because in some point in the Middle Ages, the priests were cold, you know, the churches were cold. They didn't have central heating. So they wore these fur garments, a, a tunic of skins. That's what pelvis means. And then they wore the garment over that to stay even warmer. And it became the surplus, the thing over the fur. So a surplus is actually an over fur or an over the fur. And then that is over the invader's long silk stuffed coat. So who knew that this odd necessities for being cold and being a riding guy in Turkey would eventually become the liturgical dress associated with traditional liturgy. There you go. Surplus over the fur, not surplus. Well, well, I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think it's so fantastic. We should leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did do two. We did do two two for one, baby. All right. And then I'll start next time. Okay. That sounds good. All right, Chris, uh, Dennis, how about a liturgy question? I want nothing more than that in my entire life right now. Question, 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 question. The coffee's kicking in. Question. Wow. So why go to the liturgical institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, uh, we have a question from Rediger this week. And Rediger, uh, Rediger he uh, listened to our podcast about the priest who was invalidly baptized in Michigan. Yep. And he just had some comments about it. And I thought it'd be appropriate to address his, his concerns and his comments uh, in a question form. So he says, uh, hello, ladies, you guys. Thank you for the podcast ministry. As I listened to the discussion about baptism, I had a thought Many people might wonder if God would really not consider a person baptized if the intent was baptism, but one word was incorrect in the sacramental rite. Really, God is going to get hung up on one word? My reply would be, this is up to God, not the church. God's judgment would be will be perfect, and we will leave it to God. The church has the responsibility to perform the sacrament correctly. We leave the rest up to God. So if you were given this question from somebody, and you were to say, they say, and I've heard this, you know, yeah. 
Well, why does that even matter? You know, yeah. the intent is there. So why why do we do this? And I think this kind of lays root for this entire podcast that uh, that words matter, things matter. You know. So what would you say to somebody who says that? Like, really, God's going to get hung up on a, a, a one pronoun change? Well, Chris is going to swoop in with the perfect, precise answer. So I better say something vague first. So here That's we go. That's my strategy. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things in that question, right? One is, well, I know the church has to do this, but God really wants it, whatever. Let's remember the church is the mystical body of Christ. That means the church is the continuing action of Christ in the world. And so there isn't really this separation between God and heaven and us on earth and Jesus in heaven and um, us on earth. We're actually acting as Christ, and we're giving the voice to Christ so that Christ can do what he wants. Now, if we don't give that voice to Christ properly, at times there is some kind of notion, well, you know, it's valid, it was close enough, it wasn't perfect, maybe not licit, and, um, you know, but it was still valid. When it comes to validity, to the sacramentalization of spiritual realities, they are either made real in a way that is efficacious, or they are not. And words are super important. Chris, you know, has written about words in several of his books, and words are efficacious. Christ is the word. He's the ordering principle of the Father. He's the mind of the Father, the efficacious kind of mind of the Father that emanates from God's own mind. And then we extend that out to make things that are real. And if we don't use the, the right words when it comes to matters of validity, then that spiritual reality is just not happening. Whether God is mad or miffed or not is a separate question. The fact is, you write a contract to buy a house and the words are not right, you haven't bought the house. <laughs> and you say, well, mm-hmm. doesn't, sure, doesn't he know that what I intended? Well, it might have been what you intended, but it does not say ownership will be transferred to this person, and therefore it's not. And so words have that specificity and power. Okay, so that's my thought. Now, Chris, say something brilliant. Yeah. Well, that no, was incredibly I, vague and no, very uninformative. So, no, no. It's, it, I think it's right on. Uh, I think that's the first thing is to realize this isn't just a Catholic thing or a theological thing. It's a very human thing is that words matter. I mean, think about just how we parse out the language of uh, politicians or entertainers or things like that, you know, just looking, hanging upon the right word or the wrong word or what did this mean and things like that. And I think uh, maybe we brought up that example last time of when Barack Obama was sworn in the first time is that John Roberts had him recite the wrong uh, oath of office. And so they did it again. I mean, these are sacramental questions. They're, they're kind of, of human concern. But I think too, you know, the, there's a line, you know, that, that we are bound by the sacraments, even if God is not. So is God going to get hung up on this? Well, God can do whatever he wants. I mean, he hasn't handcuffed himself to and restricted himself to only acting uh, within or through sacramental means. He can act however he wants, but, but we can't. I mean, we're bound to to follow the uh, the sacraments properly celebrated. And so, actually, I, I think the the, the questioner's points were good. I mean, uh, you know, you're right. God God is the ultimate arbiter, absolutely. Uh, but the church has the obligation, as the questioner said, to celebrate these things right. And so, you know, if we want these uh, guarantees, which is what the the sacraments do, they're they're guaranteed moments of God's action. And 
that's that's what we want. That's what we need. And that's what the church went back to provide for. So if the deacon had said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, little boy, right? Little boy is not in the right, but it hasn't changed the actual action. I transfer this house to you on June 1st, darling. Right. That's not going to change the contract. But if you are missing the actual contractual efficacious words, then you haven't done what you think you're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAX Super Taster. Or if you want to contact Chris, you can apply to have your messages put in a fortune cookie. And there is a Chinese restaurant near his house that he frequents. And maybe that question will make it his way into his Kung Pao chicken. So I'll keep an eye out for it. Well, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.